Father in heaven, <clears throat> I want to thank you for making us and for giving us these bodies, family, friends, church family, so that, God, we might rejoice knowing that you are the provider of all good things that we need. Oh, God, I thank you for the gift of your word. I pray, Father, we would never grow cold to reading this book and know it's the greatest message that we can ever read. Father, by ourselves, we have little wisdom to offer anybody in this world, little of value to say. But your word, Father, which will never pass away, has more value than everything in this world. So I ask, Father, you who are the good shepherd, would you speak to us today? Speak to our hearts, God, not through cleverness, not through me, my voice primarily, but through you. God, take what is weak and insignificant in the eyes of this world and use it for your glory. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, brothers and sisters, I have a deep desire in my heart especially, not just for revival in Vancouver, but that young people, 20s, 30s, even teenagers and others would come to know God, find their lives in Him, become passionate, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I say that knowing very well that the world that we live in preaches a very, very different doctrine and set of messages to those of you, especially here, who are young. You know, non-church-going people, especially maybe those of you who've wandered in here for the first time, or you've only been to church a handful of times, many people tell me that, oh, I've never heard sermons. It was very interesting to hear you talk, or something like that. Never, never sat, in, sat in something like that. And the truth of the matter is that I thought more about it. I realized that just because you've never been to a church before does not mean that you have not heard sermons. See, you were actually converted to a system of thinking here in North America that lives in your subconscious that you might not even realize, but you're so converted that when you hear what's being taught around you, you just unconsciously say amen to it. And this comes through the teachers, the media, the social advertising, and the powerful forces of education in this world that we take for granted. You know, our culture preaches to teenagers now, what you need to do is to get through high school and learn about yourself. And then when you're in your 20s, the message that's preached to you is that you need to get through college and then discover the world and learn about things around you. When you're in 30s, what you need to do is discover a family and learn how to build a home. And when you're in 40s, you're supposed to make the last career move you're supposed to make and make sure that you go all out in it. In your 50s, you should start thinking about retirement. And then in your 60s, you should actually retire and then enjoy the rest of your life. You know, for those of us who live in this culture and society, we hear that and we go, that's probably about right. You know, what else are you supposed to do with your life? It makes sense. But this isn't the case in other cultures around the world. We have come to hold these things not because people all throughout the ages have believed this or uh, have thought this, but actually because this is the way we have been taught to think in our culture. This is what is considered a good life and being smart. 
you know, what is a sermon, really? A sermon, in a nutshell, is really an authoritative message that calls you to change your life for the better. And in the case of Christianity, Christian sermons, the authority is God's word. And the call to change is a call to repent of your sins and to stop playing God over your own life and to come to Jesus and say, not my will be done, but God, your will be done in life. The sermons of this world mimic the same form. Except that instead of biblical authority, the authority is given to the financial gurus, to the university professors, to those who hold the PhDs, to those who control the news channels, to the YouTube streamers that everybody who is addicted to. These are the authorities of the world. The professional athletes whom everyone looks at to and applauds. And they say to you, A different message. They tell you how you're supposed to live. Be like me. And you can have a good life. Question for you is, how do you know whether the authorities who are speaking to you are actually legitimate? How do you know that your favorite vlogger or blogger is not somebody who's actually leading you astray? How do you know that the stockbroker in Vancouver becomes dissatisfied with his life and leaves this country, to go be a monk in India, how do you know he doesn't have it right? How do you know that the call on your life or what is a good life is not the call to be like Mother Teresa who left her home basically at 18 years old and gave her life to ministering to the poor, starting with about a dozen nuns and her group grew over the years to be over 4,000 women who gave themselves in singleness to devoted service to God and to serve the poor in India. How do you know that's not the life you're supposed to live? And this, this all comes down to the question of authority. Who is talking to you in your life about the way to actually live? And do they have a credible amount of authority to make that claim over you? You know, Sam Oosterhof is a Canadian politician who holds the distinction for being the youngest member of parliament ever elected at 19 years old. In a TV interview that he gave, he commented when he was asked about, well, what do you do when people comment about your age and they talk about this stuff? He just said, you know what? Um, Our culture has built such low expectations for youth and young people. And his point was, that this is an anomaly in society today. He noted that in previous generations, just barely 60, 70, 80 years ago, 16 and 17-year-olds were doing things like going to war and fighting on foreign battlefields and dying for their countries, given immense responsibilities, like leading platoons of soldiers. You know, there's a woman named Diana West who wrote a book called The Death of the Grown-Up, How America's Arrested Development is Bringing Down Western Civilization. It's the Homer Simpson phenomenon of what has happened to us. Infantile men and people not growing up. She writes this, Did you know there was a time, literally, when there were no teenagers? You know, for the vast majority of human history, there was no such thing as a teenager. There were only adults, and children, 
and children who are on the verge of becoming adults. But the society we live in takes this for granted, and we have invented, largely through our educational system and our social forces, an entirely new category of human being that has allowed countless individuals to fritter away some of the best years of their lives. One of the most difficult things I saw being in youth ministry was when I would ask students, what did you do in high school today? They would just laugh at me and say, ha ha, nothing. And I would look at them and say, I think I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Not so the educational systems of a hundred years ago in which students were wrapped on the hands and taught and urged to learn under pain of punishment. I'm not saying that's better. I'm just saying that the culture that we live in is remarkably different from even the culture barely a hundred years ago in the lifetime of our grandparents. Same is true for 20s and 30-something-year-olds today. But, you know, honestly speaking, if we look at God's Word, this is not how God designed for young people to live. God actually wants young people to invest their lives in something that is meaningful and doesn't relegate them to the bottom rungs of society, but calls them to set a godly example. You may be too poor to make it in the business world. You might not be smart enough to get into the greatest university. You might not have enough resources or come from a good socioeconomic background that would allow you to get ahead and to make a real difference in this world. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, nobody's too poor, nobody is too lowly. Anyone can be an example as long as they are willing to humble themselves and to strap on their cross and follow the person of Jesus Christ. There is hope for anyone in this world. You can never be too great to be, you can never be too poor or too humble to be a Christian, but you can be too great. You know, today what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus on this theme in our passage today about being an example. There are four things that I think the Apostle Paul wants us to get from this text as we look here today. Four things, and I'll give them under just four headers. How to act externally, who to be internally, what to do ministerially, and why you should be exemplary. Four things. How to act externally, who to be internally, what to do ministerially, and why you should be exemplary. Let's, let's begin by looking at verse 12 here. <clears throat> Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You know, every culture in this world has a tendency to look down on young people. And this is absolutely understandable given that Generally speaking, people who have lived longer have had a longer time to accrue knowledge in this world, and so the older generally teach the younger. But many of us know that this relationship between age and knowledge doesn't always necessarily hold true. We know of many stories of young people who have done remarkable things that people twice their age could barely have dreamed of. Laura Decker, a Dutch girl, sailed around the entire globe in two years at the age of 14 years old, finishing her journey at 16 years old. Louis Braille was 15 years old when he invented the Braille writing system for the blind. Changed the world. Bala Ambati became a full doctor in the United States at the age of 17 years old. Now, these individuals are exceptional. Few of us will ever attain to this. But what it does demonstrate is that young does not necessarily mean being dumb. See, I would much rather have a 17-year-old Bala 
operating on me than a 44-year-old person who has never been to medical school. You know, the Bible also speaks this way as well. Psalm 119 verses 99 to 100 says, I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditations. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Question for us, can a young God follower be wise and smarter than those older than him? Yes. How? When God's teachings, His Word, His patterns of thinking are your daily meditations and your mind walks in His wisdom. Obey God's Word and you will develop a pattern for life that will give you wisdom that is beyond your years. You know, the young man Elihu in Job 32 said it rightly when he said, I am young in years and you are aged Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what's right. See, what Elihu's point was is this. True wisdom doesn't come from Harvard or Princeton or the fact that you're simply old. Wisdom comes from God who set up this world and gives it to individuals who follow Him. Now, this is the problem that Timothy was facing here. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what his age was, but if we read through the book of Acts, we can get some hints. In Acts chapter 16, we find that Paul meets Timothy on his second missionary journey, probably around... AD 49 to 51 for the first time. And Timothy is listed there as an individual who is well spoken of by the brothers, but is also listed alongside his mother, probably because he was young enough, maybe a teenager at this time. You fast forward a little to when Paul wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, which is about 15 years later, and you do the math, and you realize that Timothy would probably have been, if he had been a teenager then, about in his late 20s to his early 30s. Young, actually, in that culture in that time. And we know this from reading things like Irenaeus, an early church father, who wrote this, The first stage of life embraces 30 years, and that this extends onwards to the 40th year, everyone will admit. So, in the thinking of that time, what's a young man? Oh, if you're 40, you're just a young whippersnapper. Very young. You know nothing at all. Now, given that the church at Ephesus had been established for a number of years already at this time, many probably led to faith by the Apostle Paul himself, it was most certain that there were individuals who were much older than Timothy in the congregation, and they perhaps had a tendency to look down on the young man. So the question is, what is a young pastor supposed to do? How to act externally, number one. Timothy, what are you supposed to do on the outside? First part, set the believers an example. Don't run away. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't even argue with them or blindly give in to to their demands. You fight negative perception of youthfulness 
Not with combativeness, but by being a stellar Christian example that is worthy of admiration and imitation. And Paul lists five areas here, grouped into two categories. Externally what you do, and internally to set this example. So here's the first. He says, speech and conduct. The first two. On the outside, what you do. Now, speech and conduct, I think, are important things because we all know that young people's mouths are generally what get them into trouble. You know, just the other day, I was reading about the Canadian federal election that's coming up and how a, the conservative candidate, Arpan Khanna, is now under fire for a Twitter post he made nine years ago with homophobic comments. Now, his comment, what I read, is so full of profanity and vile that I'm not going to repeat it here. But Kana actually acknowledged that he wrote it, and he responded publicly saying this, I deeply regret the offensive language that I used when I was a teenager. Do you know what's fascinating about this apology that he made? It's that it's actually not just an apology, but it's a thinly veiled plea for understanding and sympathy from the public. What he's saying here is that I was a teenager. I was a teenager, and and you know how teens are. That doesn't reflect who I am today. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about the use of our tongues. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And this includes teenagers and adult followers of Jesus as well. You know, if you're old enough to make a decision to follow Jesus, then you can't just play the teenager card to absolve yourself before God. The teenager card belongs to our culture. How many of us, maybe as our poor conduct for Jesus Christ, turn people away from the gospel? You know, we Christians are supposed to be an upbuilding people in the way that we speak. You know why cursing people or swearing at them or your circumstances is so bad? It's not bad because it makes people unhappy or because it sounds rude. It's because it actually shows fundamentally for us as Christians that we don't believe that God is good and that he works all things, all things, including difficult people and difficult circumstances, together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You as a Christian cannot say expletive or beep to you and then say, God, help me to be a loving person. Give me joy and suffer. It's incompatible. To curse is to harbor bitterness against the sovereign hand of God that has brought you trial into your life for your good. And the same goes even for sarcasm. It's not just swearing that betrays this bitterness of heart. You know, as Christians, I think we should be very wary of sarcasm, especially when it's used to mock or to show contempt for something. Like when you go to ICBC or something, you wait in line for two hours to get something simple, like your driver's license renewed. And you're so mad that you look at another frustrated customer in the lineup and you say something like, no wonder the circuses aren't in business anymore. I found out where all the clowns went. Now, in one sense, people understand intuitively why that's funny. It's funny when you're standing there in the line as well for two reasons. One, it's because this is not as base and dumb or 
unsophisticated as an individual that just says, you're all stupid in the line. It has a certain level of wit and cleverness in which you need to read between the lines and you listening to that say, into it subconsciously, oh, I've just understood something rather clever that demeans another human being. Fancy that I am not in that particular category of people. Second is all, somebody else got put down, and it's a great feeling not to feel dumb. And so you laugh at that intuitively, at that clever put down. However, if you were in that category, let's say instead of standing with that customer, you were the person on the other side of the desk, how would you feel? You would not be laughing. Instead, you'd feel terrible, offended by this. You know, people laugh at sarcasm because, as one writer put it, it has the finesse. It is finesse. It is hitting people in the face, but with words. But you never laugh when it's directed at you. In truth, why sarcasm is so deadly is because it's actually hostility disguised as humor. And it is dangerous. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What's really in your heart when trial comes eventually comes out. Sarcasm sometimes shows you in an ugly but humorous way, what's really there in your heart? Is there hostility that lives in your heart? You might not swear at people, but are you sarcastic at your situation or demeaning towards other people? When people think of the way that you talk, do they see upbuilding, encouragement, joy, and life? Or do they see belittling, cleverness that ultimately cuts down? Do they see Christ? Do they see your culture bleeding through How about the way that you conduct yourself? You know, Peter talks about conduct. He says, even of wives, the wives conducting themselves in a God-honoring way, even if they have husbands who do not so submit to or obey the word of God, they can be won without a word by the Christ-like conduct of their lives. You know how powerful a Christian tongue and a Christian conduct is, brothers and sisters. How we walk and how we talk matters especially for young people. Set an example with your lips and with the way you live. But it's not just that that Paul's focused on. Three more things. In the internal character, who to be internally, that really does matter. You know, Paul talks about love, and he says, uh, Timothy, set an example in number three, love. You know, love is critical to us as Christians. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, what will inspire this world is not just young people loving other young people or Asians loving other Asians, but young people loving old people, old people loving young people. People of different ethnicities and socioeconomic classes loving each other. People who have no reason whatsoever to love each other, loving one another. You say, why? What is your commonality? My commonality is not culture or hobbies. It is Christ. I live for something that you cannot see. And yet it is true. You know, A.W. Pink said this. You know, thinking about this church, 
Do you love your family in Christ? Do you love your church? A.W. Pink said, The measure of our love for others can be largely determined by the frequency and earnestness of our prayers for them. I guess so true. And I would add to that also your service to them. You can't serve people without bearing their burdens and praying for them. Neither can you just pray for people without feeling a need to go and serve them. (coughs) Even when you're ill or it's difficult to. You know, friends, those of you who are here and would call Westland your home, I'd encourage you greatly to think about it. How do you practically love your brothers and sisters here in the church? People were to look at you and the relationships that you have in our church, would they say this is a community of people that is remarkable in its love that they have for one another. They must serve a great Savior. You know, we can grow in this. You know, Paul said it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8 of his love. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So in love was the apostle Paul with the people of God that he dared to write down that God was his witness about the love that he had for others in his heart. Church, let us learn to be a people that loves the family of God by the power of Christ who lives in us. You know, fourth thing that Paul mentions here, faith. Timothy, a model to them, a life of faith. Not a life that trusts in Egypt or the silly things of this world, but one that is absolutely dependent on God for your provision. You know, recently I had a conversation with a young girl who was recently convicted, she felt by the Lord, to live on half of her salary and to give the rest away. Absolutely crazy. I mean, Sure, you could buy a car, some people said. Some said put down a down payment on your house. Not wrong things in and of themselves. But yet I think there are too many of us North American Christians who do not think that when Jesus says to a certain young man, sell all you have and follow me, that couldn't possibly be me, we say, without even thinking or praying about it. Not everyone should do that. There are those who need to support. But how many of us don't even stop to ask the question, is this what God requires of me? If you are long, young here, I would urge you not to learn how to, to learn how to save, not just spend your money on a new iPhone every year, but not just that, learn how to invest in the kingdom of God. This world is all about investments, and guess what? God is also about investments. But He wants you to invest in good things, things that will yield a 10,000-fold return that are guaranteed. You know, Dave Ramsey is the famous uh, Christian financial advisor who blogs about how to save money and how to be a better steward of your finances. And he wrote a blog once about how teenagers can be millionaires. And he showed that an individual who starts investing just $2,000 at a high rate of return for eight years and then quits doing that and leaves that money locked up at compound interest By the time they're 65, if they start 19, can be a millionaire. You look at that, you say, that's amazing. You know, compound interest is actually a fascinating thing. It's so amazing that it's reported that Albert Einstein himself said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it, earns it. And he who doesn't, pays it. That's how true. You know, the same thing holds true for spiritual things. Imagine that you're young and 20 years old and you choose to disciple and help two new Christians every year. Just two new Christians. 
And if these two Christians in turn in the next year go and help two other Christians because they were so encouraged by you, and those two other Christians do the same thing, by the time that you're 45, you might feel like you might not have very much. But if everyone did their part, you would have indirectly affected the lives of 33 million people. And you would see that in heaven. Just as an individual who invested at 19 years old and quit after a number of years would be shocked to see a million dollars sitting in their bank account, so as well it is for Christians. The investments you make now as a young person are not wasted. They compound over time and can yield a great fruit. If you're going to invest your life in anything as a young person, invest it in the things of God. You know, finally, the last thing that the apostle mentions here, number five, purity. No sexual impropriety, no unholiness. It doesn't mean that temptations don't come, but it means that Timothy is to strive to live in a way that shows, especially in a day and age like his and ours today, that what is valued is not relationships with other human beings and casual sex over the relationship with God. You know, one of the things that we allow into our hearts on TV or the books that we read, are they edifying things? Or do they cause us to commit adultery on God in our hearts? You know what the Bible says to us, brothers and sisters here? It calls young people to rise above the low cultural expectations that have been given to you and to rise to the bar of godliness. Young people are not dumb or useless, but in the kingdom of God, they can be stellar examples that serve even those who are elderly and twice their age. You know, it's fascinating to think that the Bible simultaneously does not favor either the young or the old, but simultaneously rebukes both. Both actually, young and old, have a natural tendency that is sinful to judge the other. The old think when they look at the young, you're young, therefore your mind is empty and you know nothing. The young think you're old, therefore you're outdated and you actually know nothing. God looks at both and says in Isaiah 66, verse 2, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The mistake everybody in this world makes is to ask the question, What do you know? When the real question to ask is, Who do you know? Who do you know? Do you know God? Not just know about Him, but do you know Him? For he is the source of all wisdom, all knowledge. And if you know him and you walk with him, then you have something to say. Then you have something worth imitating. Not because you are great, but ultimately because the God that you follow is worthy of imitation. And you can say to people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know, older people, you who are here, you must never discount a young person from ministry or leadership in the church simply on the basis of age. But likewise, young people, you must not discount the criticisms leveled at you by those who are older than you. You must listen to them, think about them, and then set an example that is worthy of even them to emulate and to follow. Carry out a Christ-exalting life and a Christ-exalting ministry. And so Paul says, this is what you do, young person. Verse 13 here. 
what to do ministerially. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Young people, young pastors, those in ministry leadership, here's the secret. Read Scripture, teach Scripture, exhort or urge people to follow the Scriptures. You don't have anything worth saying, but God certainly does. Timothy, he says, I know everybody is critical about your age, but don't run, read God's word, and do not shrink back from urging people to obey it. You ever wonder why on Sundays the sermon or biblical teaching is such a large part of our services here? The reason that it is is because of this. Be devoted to the public reading of God's word, teach God's word, and proclaim God's word and urge people to obey it. Why? Is it because it's the most clever way or the way that I think that people will change? No, not naturally speaking, but it's because it's God's way. The power ultimately lies not in a man of God, but in a man of God. And that's why verse 14 says this, Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, when we talked about what is this gift, I'm going to say that we settled on this being, I showed that it's Timothy, though you're young, you clearly have a gifting for ministry because God has called you. It's affirmed by the church. He wants you to lead the church, evangelize the lost, and set an example for believers to follow. This is not your innate ability, but this is a gift of God. Fan it into flame. Don't be afraid. See, the point is, you know you can succeed at this. Why? Because what you have is a gift from the Almighty of God. I'm not talking about your natural ability. I'm talking about exercising something which God has given you to use. Struggle and toil and depend on His power because it is His gift. You know, I can't tell you, especially it makes it worse because I'm Asian, the number of people who come and look at me and talk to me and say, wow, you're really young to be a pastor. Uh, sometimes I just say, oh, I'm actually much, much older than I look. <laughs> I'm not a teenager and I'm not in my 20s. <laughs> But at other times, I can tell that they mean, you know, they can tell that they mean nothing by it, and it's rather amazement, or, you know, just something interesting. But other times, I can tell when I look at the little paws that they have and the cogs whirring there in the back of their minds, that the subconscious question that they don't dare speak is, how could you possibly have anything to say to me when you yourself have barely lived? You know, I think one of the best responses to this question is what Albert Moeller said when he was elected the president of Southern Seminary, the seminary that I attended back in 1993, when he was just 33 years old. To say that his appointment over 3,000 students, 74 full professors, and 250 staff was met with incredible skepticism by many would actually be an understatement. There was a student in the Q&A of his inaugural sort of Q&A and meeting everybody at the, at the faculty who asked him straight out something along the lines of this, Dr. Moeller, you are really young and a lot of the faculty are older and wiser. What do you plan to do about that? And just sat back down. <laughs> Dr. Moeller looked back at the crowd and said, 
in simplicity, I intend to age. <laughs> and the whole room erupted in laughter. And then he went on to explain that he appreciated the question, but went on to explain since God had decided where he had been born, when he had been born, how he had been called into ministry and equipped him for the job, age really was not an issue for him. It may be an issue to other people, but since God had called, it wasn't an issue to him. You know, Dr. Moeller has led that seminary now for over 25 years, and now he is old. You know, I think Dr. Moeller's answer actually has great biblical warrant. Look at Jeremiah the prophet's call from the Lord. God said to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Jeremiah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And here's the point. Who gives a person their mouth? Who calls them out of the darkness of the ways of this world into the marvelous light of the Christian gospel? Who is it that filled Bezalel and Aholiab with such wisdom and power that they knew how to decorate the tabernacle of God that the Israelites carried in the wilderness so that it was beautiful and worthy of God? It was the Lord. It was God who did it. God is the one who equips. No ministry is done by Christians without God gifting us the ability to do so. Whether you are 63, 33, 23, or 13. Now, not everybody has the same gifting. I'll say that not everybody is going to lead a seminary at 33 years old. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, it's not an issue. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? The answer to this is no. But do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, are all of you 30? Are all of you 40? Are all of you 50? Paul is not concerned with age, but he is concerned with ability. Specifically, God-given ability to serve his people. That's ultimately what matters. And that's why Paul can tell Timothy, his young protege, go all in. Verse 15, right? He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Forget about the age. Exercise your abilities. You know, the original Greek here literally reads, practice these things and be in these things. The word immerse there is something we put in to help smooth out the translation. I think it's, I think it's good. You know, one of the funniest things for me to do is to go to the swimming pool with my kids and to watch other children there proudly declaring that they know how to swim when they're terrified of getting water on their face and they only go up to their knees and they wade around in the shallows there. I feel the same thing when I watch those children is true for North American Christianity. Many of us say that we swim in the waters of Christ, and yet really all we are are waders, I think. We walk in with our feet, we get our knees wet, 
but we don't go in any deeper. We are not immersed as followers of Jesus Christ. When we come out of the waters, we have only a bit on our legs. What does a Christian look like? In one sense, it's very simple, Paul says. It's someone who is all in. Practice these things. Be in them, he says. Live, breathe, eat, swim, Christ. So much so that everybody can see it out that you are saturated with him. And if you do this, Paul says, what is the effect? Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Why should you be so devoted to Christ-like preaching and Christ-like living? And the answer is this, because it is the means by which God uses to accomplish our salvation, to keep us walking on the road that leads to life and testifying to people around us about the reality and the greatness of a Jesus Christ who has died on the cross for our sins. How we live and how we speak matters. And as we do these things, may God be content to save people through the living witness we have of Jesus Christ. You know, what's a pastor anyways? A pastor can be many things, but in essence, it's very simple. It's an individual who preaches and teaches Jesus Christ and an individual who models him. You know what young means in the Christian world? Young does not mean explore the world and fritter away your time. Young means Set an example, not make excuses why you're too young to do something. Don't waste your youth. All of you young people are sitting here. You're valuable. Some of you are examples growing up, yes, but examples to be to people who might come to know Jesus later in life. And though they are twice your age, are infants, babies, compared to who you are in Jesus Christ. And you must set them an example. Don't let people diminish Christianity because of a poor youthful witness. But witness as a person who has been transformed utterly by the things of Christ. If you're young, I would encourage you to be here at the church. Go out and use your youthful strength to serve the elderly. Join the teams that go out on a regular basis to visit the senior homes and be an encouragement. Take people out for bubble tea. Take them hiking up the grouse grind, something you can do with your youthful strength and get to the top and worship God. That's what you can do. Your grandpa can't do it, but you can use your youth well. Memorize God's word and set an example for people that young does not mean filling your mind with YouTube, but with the precious word of God. Friends, you know, if you don't know Jesus Christ here, and I would urge you here to follow the example of Christ. Know that you're a sinner who is in desperate need of grace and that what is wrong with your life in the system of this world is your sin. It's sin. And what you need most of all is fixing. To make that right with God, the world around you here preaches a very different message of how you are to live. But the God of all the universe is speaking to you today and says, follow me and find life. Find forgiveness for your sins. Find a new relationship with me. This is timeless. This is eternal. And you will be changed. You know, Timothy, pastors, young Christians and old, 
The call for us is to model Jesus Christ outwardly, to model him, be Christ-like inwardly, to minister God's word like Christ. And heaven and hell hang not on conforming to youthful expectations created by our culture, but conforming to the culture of Jesus Christ. And may God see fit through our conformity to Christ to lead many to the Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us and saving our souls. Father, I think specifically of those who are young here today and in the group. And one thing that is certain is that every day that passes, we will age and we will get old. Old happens to us, God, whether we want it to or not, but godliness does not. So I pray, Father, that we would exercise and train ourselves in godliness, O God, so that as we live in this world, people would see the beauty and the glories of Jesus Christ, O God, and be led to a saving knowledge of Him who is our Savior. O God, I pray, Father, that you would convict people here today. Convict us, O God, if we have lived lives that dishonor you, either with our mouths or with our actions, or if there are those here who have not submitted to you, O God, but recognize their need for a Savior. Oh God, I beg for our young here today that they would not waste their young lives, God, but to spend them well and that you would mold them into examples, beacons of light that save ships of all different ages that sail through this world. Oh Lord, would you do much for our young? But whether young or whether are old, I pray, Father, our church will be full of individuals who, because of the joy that we have in Christ, O oh God, will look at following our Master and imitating our Master as a happiness and a privilege to have. I pray this, Father, and give you thanks. Help us to live in Jesus' name. Amen.